0: This
1: is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle and coming up on the program, the Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Cultural Complex now includes a civil rights museum, a replica of the Moore home, a meditation garden, reflecting pool, and gazebo.
2: Of course, I helped my dad a lot with the work that he was doing with the NAACP and the Progressive Voters League.
0: Remembering the neighborhood called Crackertown. Crackertown is just a poor district of Vero that Still exists somewhat. Telling
1: traditional stories in two languages at the same time, that and more ahead on Florida Frontiers.
3: It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth. His voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say. Freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. It happened in Florida, the land of flowers. It was on a Christmas night. Men came stealing through the orange grove. Men of hate carrying dynamite. It was to a little cottage. The family, the name of Moore. At the window hung sprigs of holly, a fine wreath at the door. It was on a Christmas evening and the family prayers were said. Mother, father, daughter and grandmother went to bed. The father's name was Harry Moore of the NAACP. He fought for the life for us to live. Black folk must be free. It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth. His voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say. Freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for. Freedom never dies.
1: The Ballad of Harry Moore by Langston Hughes tells the story of slain civil rights activist and educator Harry T. Moore, who was killed when a bomb exploded under his home in Mims, Florida, on Christmas night, 1951. His wife Harriet died nine days later from injuries sustained in the blast. The Moore's only surviving daughter, Juanita Evangeline Moore, arrived at the home site from Washington, D.C. two days after the bombing. Photographs from the Florida State Archives show what she saw that day, a home so severely damaged by the bomb that it was knocked off of its foundation. A replica of the Moore family home now sits on the site where the original family home once stood. I spoke with Evangeline Moore while sitting inside the newly constructed replica of her family home. One can only assume that as Ms. Moore looks around the reconstructed house that it brings mixed emotions for her.
2: Yes, but mostly pleasant ones because uh, it looks so much nicer. I remember when I came home uh, that Christmas. I arrived on the 27th of December and one of the first stops we made after the announcement was made by my uncle at the train station, that the house had been bombed, my dad was dead, and my mother was in the hospital. I did come back to the house. Uh, it was, I can't, I can't explain the tr- feeling that I had. I walked in the front door, and as you can see, I could see my parents' bedroom, big hole and the uh, the mattress and the bed and everything was in that hole and parts of the ceiling rafters was all there um i walked to the dining room looked in our bedroom my sister's in my bedroom and i saw that uh, her her bed was really under the double windows in there um it was Filled with just finely slivered glass. And I knew at that moment that had I been home, she would have been dead also, so I I couldn't go any further. So to come back and see it looking very much like the house was, it's very comforting.
1: After seeing her family home nearly destroyed, Evangeline Moore never returned. There are photographs of Evangeline Moore as a young girl in and around her family home, sitting on the front porch and at the dining room table. Now that the replica of her family home is complete, she says it allows her to focus on pleasant memories.
2: I don't know really how to explain, but there was so much love and, and, and just just a house full of love. And, of course, I helped my dad a lot with the work that he was doing with the NAACP and the Progressive Voters League. My sister was an avid reader, and she took very little part in any of the work that Dad was doing. She she was always in a corner somewhere reading a book, uh, but the the... The love between my sister and me was something that was very, very unusual, even though we were very different in nature. Um, and my mother, I mean, she was, she was an absolute angel. And I, I can just remember the, the love and the warmth that surrounded me while I was here. And my my parents were very affectionate both to my sister and me and to themselves because I remember oftentimes just walking through the house and I, I could actually see my parents in any room in the house and they would be embracing. And I thought that's something that doesn't happen too often. But it has, it has gone with me throughout my lifetime. I was never fortunate to have that type of relationship, but I remembered the, the love and warmth that I felt in this house and the caring that um, coming back and seeing it very much like it was is, is a tremendous, tremendous uh, joy and a comfort to me.
1: An antique typewriter sits on a small table next to where Evangeline Moore and I spoke. Harry T. Moore was a prolific letter writer calling for investigations into lynchings in Florida and working for the NAACP. While he traveled around the state registering African Americans to vote and encouraging membership in the NAACP, he did his writing from his home in MIMS. Evangeline Moore says she didn't realize the significance of his work at the time.
2: No, I didn't he was just to me he was just daddy and i knew i mean i knew that he was doing some work but i didn't rem- recognize the uh, the tremendous effect that it was having on citizens of uh, america until after he was dead and i Was, you know, after, actually, after Ben Green wrote his book, it was only then that I realized the magnitude of the work that my dad had done. Although I helped him because I can remember running off sample ballots on the ditto machine and addressing envelopes and licking envelopes and licking stamps and, of course, always trailing behind my dad when he would go to the post office to mail them. I knew he was doing something that was very important, but um, I just didn't, at that time, realize— exactly the magnitude of what he was doing.
1: The Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Cultural Complex includes a civil rights museum as well as the Moore family home replica. Most recently, the Moore Center unveiled a meditation garden, reflecting pool, and gazebo. Water flows over quotes from Harry T. Moore and Martin Luther King, Jr. At the dedication of the Moore Center expansion, speakers included State Senator Tony Hill and Bill Gary, president of the Moore Cultural Complex. State Senator Thad Altman addressed ongoing efforts to recognize the Moors.
4: This is a very, very important spot. It is hollowed ground. And I hope this is only the beginning uh, in remembrance of the Moors and the great sacrifice. And I tell you, um, Senator Hill worked on a project, Uh, Senator Hill and uh, and I worked on a project last session. We didn't quite get it through, but it will be one of the first uh, bills that I will pursue, and that's renaming State Road 46 after the Moors. You know, (laughs) all the work that's been done to resurrect the investigation of of this crime, um, it appears that the offenders took State Road 46 to come to Mims to, to uh, uh, do this horrific act, a horrific act against liberty and freedom. I think it's only appropriate that when people take that road today, it will have the names of the Moors. That is justice and it's appropriate.
1: Harry T. Moore registered tens of thousands of African Americans to vote and provided them with sample ballots. Brevard County Commissioner Robin Fisher made an announcement of particular relevance.
5: I was hoping the uh, Supervisor of Election, Lori Scott, was here, but she had I don't think she got a chance to make it today. But uh, uh, talking to her last night, I told her I was going to go ahead and leak it out a little bit. But, you know, it's only fitting when you think about all the things that uh, the Moors fought for, and one of them was everybody having the right to vote, that we're going to make this a precinct that uh, you can actually come and vote at. So she... Uh, <laughs> So she probably didn't want me to say that yet, but y'all make sure you send her an email and tell her thank you. we we'll put more pressure on her. But uh, she's going to make that happen, and I think that's going to be great and fitting for the Moors.
1: The story of Harry T. Moore has gained much more recognition over the past decade, beginning with the Ben Green book Before His Time, The Untold Story of Harry T. Moore, America's First Civil Rights Martyr, and the PBS documentary Freedom Never Dies. Annual recognitions include a memorial at the Moore Gravesite and the Moore Heritage Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Although all this is a step in the right direction, Evangeline Moore says her parents still don't get the recognition they deserve.
2: They deserve a whole lot more. They really do. he, he, He has not really been given the recognition that he should have, particularly here in the United States. This is a start. But he—I mean—he should be—he should be far. I mean, there should be stories about him, even above Martin Luther King, because Dad laid the foundation for what Martin Luther King ultimately was able to do himself. And I think it's a shame that uh, every time Black History Week, um, a month, and all this stuff. Dad should be at the top of the list when you start talking about people who gave their lives so that black people could have equal rights.
1: While there is still much to be done with the annual Moor Heritage Festival and other efforts, Bill Gary says awareness about the Moors is growing.
6: There has uh, been um, quite a bit of progress along those lines here uh, in recent years. Uh, uh, one of the things that I think um, is going to help us tremendously Um, is uh, we happened to have an opportunity to meet with Dr. Lonnie Bunch who is director of the National African-American Museum of History and Culture in Washington DC at the Smithsonian. Uh, We gave him a presentation about the Moors and asked um, for his consideration in including the Moors in the new uh, National Museum that's going to be built on the Washington Mall. Uh, He was receptive to that idea and uh, over some months of correspondence has assured us that the Moors would have a place. Uh, Our task now is to develop uh, a appropriate presentation uh that would go into that space uh in the new national museum there
1: young african americans today are looking at race much differently than previous generations evangeline moore says that having an african-american president demonstrates limitless opportunities but that young people need to remember that the work of her father and others made barack obama's presidency possible
2: i'm just so elated uh that President and Mrs. Obama are in the White House with their daughters, and um, there are a lot of observations that I make daily. Um, the, the, The relationship and the love and affection that I can see, which transpires between President Obama and his wife and his two little girls, reminds me a lot of the relationship that my mother, my father, my sister, and I had.
1: The Moore Cultural Complex is located on Freedom Avenue in Mims, just north of Titusville in North Brevard County.
3: So if you see our Harry Moore walking on a Christmas night Don't you fear and run and hide He has no dynamite For in his heart is only love for all the human race all he wants is for each of us to have our rightful place. And this, he says, I'll have remorse, from the grave he cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say, freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for, freedom never
1: dies. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can find great books about Florida history and culture, check out our video, audio, and print resources, and much more. While you're there, become a member of the Florida Historical Society and get our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513,
7: Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This Moment in Florida History features historian Michael Gannon.
5: Florida has the oldest recorded history of any of the American states, beginning with the discovery and naming of Florida by Juan Ponce de Leon nearly 500 years ago. There followed thereafter a 48-year-long period of Spanish and French exploration, a 198-year period of Spanish settlement, a British interregnum of 21 years, a second Spanish period from 1784 to 1821, a United States territorial period of 23 years, U.S. statehood from 1845 to the outbreak of the American Civil War, four years as a member of the Southern Confederacy, and 146 years as, once again, a state of the American Union. Whew, it tires the mind to comprehend all that. But just remember this, that in 2013, Florida will observe a half-millennium of written history. No other state can make that claim. University of
7: Florida historian Michael Gannon. This Moment in Florida History was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council, with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida.
1: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Marshall Goodnight has fond memories of the neighborhood that he still calls Crackertown. It's a place that most folks now living in Vero Beach have never heard of. Janey Gould has more.
8: Mention Crackertown to people in Vero Beach, and you're likely to get puzzled looks. Crackertown is a place known only to old-timers. A neighborhood just east of downtown, it was anchored, if you will, by the railroad station when it was on Commerce Avenue. Marshall Goodnight moved to Vero Beach from Oklahoma when he was a tot in the 1940s. His family built a house in Crackertown. One of his early memories is of taking the train back to Oklahoma to visit relatives in 1948.
0: I recall getting on the train at the train station almost in the heart of Crackertown. Crackertown is just a poor district of Vero that still exists somewhat.
8: Nobody calls it Crackertown anymore, right?
0: Well, all of us who lived here then do. (laughs) It's still Crackertown.
8: All the old-timers.
0: That's exactly right.
8: The train station was right there.
0: In fact, when I walked to school, when first and second grade, I'd walk underneath the platform at the train station to get a beeline from the house to the school.
8: The house is still there, you were telling me.
0: The house is still there. My mom and my granddad built that in 1948. We don't own it anymore. We finally sold it about 10 or 12 years ago
8: why was this neighborhood called cracker town
0: i think just because it was mostly old florida people that lived there i don't have any documented historical information on that
8: you moved west of town a few years later and grew up on a farm
0: i missed the social life that we had in cracker town it was nice to be able to play softball with the neighborhood kids play hide and seek that kind of stuff ride bicycles through the neighborhood got out into the country we were somewhat isolated So it was pretty different.
8: You still had a bike, though, and you sometimes got to ride into town. That was, what, five miles away?
0: Yes, on rare occasions my mom would let me ride the bicycle to town. I liked it when I got to ride to school.
8: Did you ride back to Crackertown sometimes?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, I had friends that lived there. So, yeah, we'd spend quite a bit of time together there, even after we moved away.
8: You know some folks who still live there?
0: I do. There are not very many, of course. Some relatives still live in that area.
8: And they still call it that?
0: I don't think any of the newer residents call it Crackertown, but most of us fondly recall it as Crackertown.
8: I think some new residents wouldn't know what you were talking about or where it was or is.
0: I admit I get a lot of funny looks when I talk about Crackertown. <laughs> well, the first thing that I get asked is, well, what's Crackertown? Where is that? I well... <laughs> It's just an isolated residential area that still exists pretty much as it was 50 years ago.
8: Kind of in the center of town.
0: It's pretty much in the center of it today. It was a little bit off to the east side then. There wasn't much between Crackertown and the river, but saltwater marsh and woods. Rock Ridge took care of that.
8: How would some of your folks feel, do you think, if they came back and saw everything that surrounds Crackertown? The Miracle Mile Shopping Center, Publix a four-lane US-1, the Press Journal building, all those things, what do you think they would think?
0: I can't imagine what they would think. They'd feel pretty out of place, I'm sure.
8: When you drive on, let's say, 10th Avenue, which is now a busy street, do you ever think about Crackertown and what it used to be like there?
0: I still drive through Crackertown periodically because there are a lot of memories there. I like to drive up and down each street, look at each of the old homes that are still there, and uh, remember who was living there at the time. We had so many kids that we could play with. Every house had kids that were in our age group.
8: Of course, you weren't officially crackers since you had moved here from Oklahoma.
0: It seemed like we fit in. I guess if Oklahoma had crackers, we would fit into that social category.
8: Marshall Goodnight owned a lawn equipment business for many years.
0: Janie Gould prepared that report. This is
1: Florida Frontiers. In South Florida, one storyteller is bringing people together with traditional stories told in a unique way. Bill Dudley has more.
9: In a sense, South Florida does epitomize much of what goes on all over, because it is this great combination of so many different languages and peoples. But that's been the history of Florida. How many flags have we lived under?
7: Bringing Florida's history and cultural diversity to life is one of the goals of storyteller Carrie Sue Ivar, who says she became interested in the magic of storytelling at an early age when, as a young girl, she spent summers with grandparents in Miami Beach.
9: They told stories every afternoon to keep us, I think, out of trouble or to help us figure out how to get out of trouble. They told us stories every night. My grandmother would take us around the world. She'd say, where would you like to go tonight? And she would tell us a story from different parts of the world. I thought she had been everywhere. It wasn't until years later I found out she was just well read. And my grandfather was one of the best storytellers I've ever known. And most of the lessons that I still remember to this day were from his stories. Those stories about how you can change, make change happen through stories has empowered me ever since.
7: In college, Ivar went to live in Mexico, where she learned Spanish and met her husband-to-be.
9: We came from such different worlds, different languages, different cultures, different religions, totally different backgrounds. There were a lot of people who thought, well, we had nothing in common, but we had all the important things in common. I grew up with stories, and so did he, and that part was the same, so the rest really didn't matter, and we've been together over 30 years now. She went to pick it up, she saw that it was una moneda de oro, a small gold coin. Well, La Mariposa took that gold coin and went straight for the market, El Mercado. What will I buy with this?
7: One of Ivar's special techniques is her bilingual approach to telling stories, speaking words and phrases first in Spanish, then English.
9: For those that maybe the second language is, is English and Spanish is their first, I always say the Spanish first because then they get it for just a second before everybody else. Instead of always being a second behind, that's really powerful. It's also important for us to validate our own stories. So when we hear stories of others or when we hear our own stories, we're validated in those stories as well. Especially here I think in Florida because we are a land of immigrants here in the United States and Florida really epitomizes that. Many people will tell folk tales from another country, but when you can tell that culture's folk tale in its own language, we know That language holds so many values and holds so many hidden jewels of
8: a
2: story, and she's expressing them.
7: Karen Neal is director of the South Florida Storytelling Project at Florida Atlantic University. In America today, we tend to associate storytelling with children. In fact, Ivar says, more and more adults are discovering the appeal of a good story as told by a live person.
9: Just recently at the Willow Theater in Boca, I did Tamale Tales. It was all adults, and it was sold out. We've had several theaters that all adult audiences now sold out for storytelling because there's still a great need for it and a great enjoyment of it. All storytellers need to educate the American public, not so much people overseas. People overseas are much more aware of storytelling as an adult art form, interestingly enough. Most nights, they went to bed fairly early. Ah, pero en las noches de la luna llena, on the nights of the full moon... My don't but perhaps it. the most
7: important part of Carrie Sue Ivar's mission is to promote cross-cultural understanding.
9: And for me, that's what storytelling is all about. It's connecting people, celebrating the differences and enjoying all the similarities. It also gives us a taste of the other. Then they're not quite so foreign, because by the time you're done listening to the stories, you're not thinking, oh, this is in a different language, that they're different, they're far away, they're alien because you're now connected with them. And you really cannot hate anyone whose story you know, because then you have a human face on it, and that changes everything. So when you're gonna to try to break down prejudice or ignorance, and you have a human face on it, and that's what storytelling does, you do break it down. We, we have so many different people and cultures and languages that have always made up Florida. And that's one of the things for me storytelling can do. It can show that we are all actually all of the same race, the human one.
7: I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council.
1: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week, and until then, you can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Markle.